could open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we continue our study and now in 2 Corinthians, we ask, Father, for your blessing. We ask, Lord, that you will grant us the ability to understand and to comprehend the things that Paul writes. We pray, Lord, that it be our desire to want to know your word in such a way that we're able to take it and to apply it to the way that we live, to the way that we think. The Father, we may live lives again that honor you, that we may have a great and deep and lasting joy. The Father, we might be encouraged and strengthened to live in these difficult times and maintain a stability and a steadfastness that speaks well of you. We thank you, Father, again for really the attractiveness of the truth of God. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would continue in our lives to make it attractive to others. As always, we thank you. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me go through an, uh, kind of an introduction of 2 Corinthians so that it kind of set for us the context and understanding the letter that Paul has written. First of all, what you want to kind of just keep in mind generally is that 1 Corinthians was written around 55 AD and 2 Corinthians was written around 56, 57 AD. So a year and a half, a couple of years maybe after 1 Corinthians was written, this was written. Again, as we know from our study in 1 Corinthians, that the church in Corinth was not immune to debauchery. Remember, that was one of their problems. Debauchery would be, uh, I guess we would define it this way, it's habitual and unrestrained indulgence of lust and sensuality. There are a lot of places in the scripture where the word debauchery is used to indicate, I guess the word we might use today would be the word partying. In other words, it kind of encompasses several aspects of unholy living. Uh, it's not limited to these things, but it definitely includes sexual immorality, drunkenness, crude talk, kind of generally out of control behavior. So we learned of this as we studied uh, um, Paul's correction in his first letter to the believers in Corinth. But it wasn't only on sexual matters that they had problems. We all, if you remember, they were easily impressed by individuals who had, I guess, external uh, qualities that, that you kind of you were enamored by, you know, individuals who were eloquent, individuals who seemed to have superior knowledge or maybe human wisdom, and they're also enamored with those who had the spectacular gifts such as speaking in tongues. So they seemed to be in general a group of individuals that walked really more by sight than by faith, and so Paul was trying to correct uh, what was going on there by his letters and also by his visits. So when it comes to that, uh, the nature and the number of Paul's contacts and correspondence with the Corinthians is disputed. When I say that, there's, there's not an agreement as to exactly how many times he visited and how many letters he actually wrote to them. Um, there are varying opinions, some three that he, that he actually wrote anywhere from three to five different letters uh, to the church in Corinth. 
And uh, some believe that he visited Corinth a few times. Some believe that he may have visited them as many as three times. So let, let me kind of give you a general rundown of what Paul was doing, what was happening at Corinth. Uh, once again, to kind of, I guess, maybe set the historical setting and what was going on. So Paul first arrived in Corinth in the spring of 51 AD. He was there for about a year and a half. Uh, then in 52, uh, he sailed with Priscilla and Aquila to Ephesus, uh, where they remained, and then Paul went on to Jerusalem. Uh, while at Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila met Apollos. Remember, we heard about them, him in 1 Corinthians. And that's when they kind of took him in because he was very eloquent. He knew the scripture, but he didn't quite have a good grasp of the gospel. And they wanted to help him out. And so they discipled him. Uh, and then after they did that for a while, they sent him off really to Corinth, where he began to minister. While Apollos was in Corinth in the fall of 53, Paul returned, from, uh, uh, returned to Ephesus from Jerusalem. And that was on his third missionary journey. And Paul stayed in, in Ephesus for about two and a half years. Uh, he kind of established there a center for evangelizing the uh, surrounding provinces as well. Um, and so it is from there that the actual first letter to Corinth went. That's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5.9. In other words, uh, 1 Corinthians isn't the first letter. It's what we call 1 Corinthians because it's our first letter. But he sent one to them before that. Uh, it seemed to be a letter that they misunderstood, um, and it's, it's been lost. We don't know where it's at. No one has seen it. Um, but so during his early stages uh, there in Ephesus, that was probably when he wrote the letter to them. So again, this letter was received by them. It seemed to be misunderstood by them. Parts of it were ignored. So Paul learned of their misunderstanding, and then he also learned of additional problems that was going on in the church in Corinth. Uh, from the members of the household of Chloe. Uh, they came looking for Paul to tell him that there was problems in the church. Uh, and then shortly after that, there was that official delegation that we mentioned before. That was Stephanus, uh, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. And they brought news, the same kind of news that those from Chloe's house brought, that there were some issues in the church that needed to be addressed, and that there were also some very specific questions that were causing divisions in the church. So again, 1 Corinthians, which we just looked at, was physically Paul's second letter to the church. And it was written to address those matters, and we, we looked at all of those. But apparently, after they got the letter, or what we call 1 Corinthians, uh, these problems weren't quite resolved. Um, it's possible that Timothy then came back to look up Paul, to let him know the news that things still weren't going well. And so Paul then decided that he was going to go to Corinth himself. So he sailed there directly from Ephesus, went to Corinth. And when we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he mentions a painful visit. That's the one. After they get 1 Corinthians, things aren't resolved. He goes there himself. And basically he goes there to set things in order. I mean, he's going there to scold them and uh, kind of let them know what's going on. Uh, there are some problems that surrounded pretty much an individual that we're going to talk about a little bit when we get later uh, a little deeper into um, uh, into, Corinth into Second Corinthians, and uh, again there was a failure of the Corinthians to really to support Paul. And we'll talk about that when we get there. So after that visit, Paul then went back to, to Ephesus, and when he went to Ephesus, he then wrote a third letter to the church at Corinth. We don't have that one either. 
Uh, Titus brought that one back to them. Uh, but again, Paul was deeply grieved to write that letter because I guess that third letter was kind of a follow-up to his visit. So he was, again, kind of taking in the task uh, for what they were doing, the wrong they were doing, the sin they were involved in, and their misuse of scripture and, and those things. So it was during this time then, this late, as he's been in Ephesus for a while, that there's a riot that takes place in, in Ephesus. And you read about that in Ephesians, but basically there were some individuals who were silversmiths. And their main income was they would make little idols and sell them. Well, when you have people converting to Christianity, the market share for idols goes down. And so these guys were getting pretty upset uh, because of that. And so there was a riot um, and they wanted Paul gone. And that took place around AD 56. And so Paul took that as a cue to leave, <laughs> which he did. And so he went to Macedonia. Um, when he went to Macedonia, he kind of stopped on the way in a place called Troas because he wanted to hook up with Titus, but he couldn't find Titus there. So he was becoming a little concerned about him. So he went on to Macedonia and then he ran into Titus. Um, and uh, so he was glad to see him there. And when he met Titus, Titus then brought him some good news that in general, things at the church in Corinth were beginning to, to, to do better. Uh, they had taken the correction. Uh, things were kind of being worked out, but there was still some bad news. And the bad news is there was a group there, maybe a growing group of individuals who didn't like Paul and they were trying to discredit Paul. And the reason why they were doing that, the main reason would be, if you can discredit Paul, they would not listen so much to what Paul has said and written, and then they'll listen to us. That's the main idea uh, in doing that. So then, when he was in Macedonia, Paul wrote a fourth letter to the church at Corinth, which is 2 Corinthians. And that's the letter that we're about to get into. Uh, and then shortly after that, Paul then made a third visit to Corinth, uh, in the winter of either 56 or 57 AD. So the first question is, so what about the two lost letters? Well, I think that's pretty simple. If God intended for those to be a part of scripture, we'd have them. Right? When you read the story of the Bible or the history of the Bible, uh, there's one miracle after another how this book has been, pre these books, 66, have been preserved for us by God. Uh, and so there is nothing that is missing from this. Sometimes if you look on uh, on the internet, surprise of all surprises, uh, you can across individuals who say that there are books missing from the Bible um, and there's nothing missing. And the books they claim that are missing, most of them you can find online and you can read them. And when you read them, you realize, yeah, that's not missing from the Bible. It shouldn't be in the Bible. Uh, but there's a couple and we don't have any clue where they are and that would be these other two letters at Corinth. Uh, but clearly, if we needed them, God would make sure we have them. We don't have them. Uh, so that's that's it. There's really nothing, not a whole lot there uh, to go on besides that. But one of the things I want you, to, I want to point out to you, I want us to think about, and that's this, is the way that the text reads. And what I mean by that, I remember uh, when I was in my 20s, I would listen to certain speakers and read a couple of books, and they would talk about these men. A lot of them were, were men. Some of them were, were women. They were all academics. They talk about when they would read the Bible, that it was just so different than the other holy books of other religions. And when they read the Bible, there are many things in the Bible that drew them to read through the Bible, to consider what the Bible said, 
to consider it truthful and for many of them to become converted to Christianity. And I always wondered, what are they talking about? I read the Bible. What is different? Of course, the difference was, is I was raised in a home where the Bible was read all the time. I was very used to the book. These were individuals who were in academics. They weren't raised in a Christian home. And so when they come across the Bible, it's just this, this marvel uh, as they kind of look at it and read it. And so I always kind of wonder, what, what's the deal with that? Uh, I've read some of the books from uh, other religions. Um, not all that interesting. I guess they're interesting in a sense. Uh, but when you read the Bible, you come across, again, details, details of personal travel, like with Paul and other individuals. Uh, you come across the names and situations of other kinds of people, different, all kinds of situations are given. But all of those details actually give credence to the truthfulness of the Bible. In the New Testament, there are names of various cities, political official, uh, officials, uh, and various events, and all of those things people have looked at, and there's been this confirmation that these things are accurate in history. From other resources, they go, yeah, well, you know what, the Bible mentions this, and yep, that's true, that happened, yep, that happened, yep, that guy existed, and so on and so forth. So historians, archaeologists have confirmed that, and so what those, what those details reveal to us is the correctness of Scripture and the reliability of Scripture. So basically, when you read through the Bible, even though it's a holy book, which it is, there is a sense of realism when you read the Bible, and it's really very important. It really, again, gives credibility to the Bible that we're not reading a book of fairy tales uh, and that type of things. I'm not going to recommend this book, but there is a book called The Book of Urantia. It's kind of a new age thing. It's a small following. It's, it's about like that. Um, I've read parts of it. I've not read all of it. It's just, it's a weird thing. Um, now, if you're really into science fiction, it might be interesting, because uh, that's how it reads. It does not read like a book that's dealing with spiritual truth, but that's what its claims are. And there's tons of, of things out there like that, uh, that when you read through them, they're, 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 there's, it's missing that sense of realism. And that's not because of a, a prejudicial point of view, because my view is the Bible is true and it's realistic, so therefore this thing is just garbage. It, it, to me, it's not only obvious, but others who read that and are not familiar with the Bible and read the Bible will, will talk about that, that difference in them. So again, the way that the Bible is written really is very uh, uh, interesting and important. And again, whether it's dealing with theological issues such as sin and salvation, or to something like Paul collecting money for the poor in Jerusalem, there is a general everyday sense of reality to what's expressed. So once again, God really knew what he was doing when the Bible was written and put together. From some of the faculty members of the Westminster Theological Seminary, there was a, a statement came out and they said this, we can also consider the rawness of the Bible. The historical pattern of writing during the biblical period was often to exaggerate military exploits and kingly greatness. But the Bible stands out in stark contrast. Despite any cultural pressures to advance historical propaganda, the Bible does not candy coat people's lives. It does not revise history to portray kings and other leaders as possessing a power and glory exceeding reality. So that's another difference that those who are familiar with ancient documents and historical things notice as far as a difference between reading the Bible and even reading other just history. That when kings would have people write you know, of their exploits, 
I mean, these individuals appear to be demigods because they do nothing wrong. They never lose a battle. People in their army hardly ever die. I mean, it's just incredible, the, the exploits. And we know from other historical facts that, yeah, it wasn't quite that way. And certain things are missing from their records, uh, things that when they would lose a battle, that would not be in their record kind of a thing. And there are several, even though the Internet is filled with a bunch of garbage, there are some good things on the Internet as well. There are several online apologetics ministries where they, have, they collect a lot of uh, uh, very accurate uh, academic uh, and even uh, things that written in, in layman's terms of various issues surrounding the Bible and its validity. Uh, and you can have access to them. And so I came across something that I, I think kind of brings two aspects together, where you have the realism of the Bible and then the supernatural aspects of the Bible. Because when we read it, you know, we, we read of miracles, we read of incredible events, we read of God's direct intervention in history in the lives of individuals. And for some people, it's like, you know, how, how do you make sense of this? You know, in, in the minds of some people, we have, we have these fairy tales of miracles and then you have these details of this battle. How do these things come together? And why, why is it that way? Well, let me read this to you. Like so many ancient religion myths, the Bible builds its story around supernatural events. But there's a difference. The main storyline of the Bible is not told in the language of once upon a time. Instead, from Moses to the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the drama of the Old Testament and New Testament is linked to specific events, times, geographical locations, and people. The result is that while the storyline of the Bible moves forward on supernatural claims, the validity of those claims rests on the credibility of the individuals and the communities who witness these events in real times and places. Many of these witnesses died for the refusal to deny what they saw and heard. Their suffering and deaths deserve consideration. While millions have died for what they believe to be the truth, how many have died for what they claim to have seen while knowing it to be a lie? So what that does is it says, so we have all these supernatural claims because it is in a sense married or interlocked with all of these very specific people, places, historical events. That just lends a greater sense of credibility to everything you're reading. And so that's why, you've, if you've ever heard me do a funeral, um, there are certain things I always bring out, or, or there's probably four or five different things I'll bring out at different funerals. And one of those is, is you know, when, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Remember that when he raised Lazarus from the dead, dead, Jesus was not all that popular. He was popular among the general masses, but all the legion of Israel, they were against Jesus. They wanted him, they wanted him out of the way. They wanted him dead. And so there was a delegation of individuals who were following Jesus around, and they weren't believers. They were there basically to record in great detail everything he did and say, said. They were to witness everything he did and said, because what they wanted to do was to build a case against him. They were looking for dirt, and they were, they were going to do the best they could to figure out even things they could twist to discredit Jesus and then basically get rid of him. And that's important because they were there when Jesus showed up at the tomb of Lazarus. The detail, it's only a little phrase in that story. It mentions that Lazarus had been dead for four days. That's of just great importance. Because even the Jews themselves believed that it was in some way, they didn't know how, but possible, 
that if somebody was dead for three days, they might come back to life. They, they even believed that the soul of the individual kind of hovered around the body for up to three days. But by day four, they're dead. They're truly dead. All right, and so that's important. So everybody there is convinced this man is dead. No smoke and mirrors. So then when Jesus asked for the, the, the uh, tomb to be unsealed and the, and the uh, rock uh, moved, that's why there was such a big stir. Like, you know, that, that's not only unusual, there's going to be kind of a pretty bad smell because, you know, they don't embalm. I don't know if you've been around a dead person on day four. I have not. But I have read about it, and it's, it can be overwhelming, to say the least. So again, he's, he's dead. So, that's, so then that's why the sisters of Lazarus had to say, it's, whatever he says, just do it. So again, just if you imagine, when, when this is all being done, I guarantee you that that group of men following Jesus, yeah, they're not opening up their picnic lunch to see what's going on. They're watching to see what's going to happen here. And of course, there's this expectation. I mean, why? What would the reasons be for Jesus to have the tomb open? The only thing imaginable is this guy is going to somehow try to fool people into thinking he can raise the dead. I mean, what else is what else is left? So people are kind of paying attention. So then, when he calls Lazarus forth, and Lazarus comes out, I think the I think the King James says there was a stir. Be an understatement. Be more than just a stir. But those that group of men, they immediately they, they leave. And they show up again later on in the Gospels. Not too, too much later on, but a short time later. And they're meeting with the other leaders of Israel. No one is denying Jesus did what he did. No one. Remember now, they're, they're trying to find a way to discredit him. There were too many witnesses to what Jesus did. And so in their discussion of trying to find a way to get rid of Jesus, it states in there, that and some of them, those that were there that were watching, you know, they were talking about you know, getting rid of Jesus in the sense of killing him, also wanted Lazarus to be put to death. Why? Because of Lazarus, many have believed in Jesus. So in this meeting, there are individuals who are saying, this guy Lazarus, he was dead, he was raised to life by Jesus. We need to kill him. Because this guy came back to life. Other people are believing in Jesus. I would like to think that if I was there, I would say, excuse me. A, are we going to make sure he stays dead? And are you listening to yourself? He was dead. This guy raised him from the dead. That means something. They're all missing it because they were blinded by their sin. So this specific event that took place, the details of it are important because in the historical record, it lends credibility that this thing actually took place. And in the writings of individuals after Jesus ascended into heaven, there were rumors about, you know, the, the Jews wrote that Jesus was possessed by demons. But there was no evidence that he didn't raise Lazarus from the dead. There was no one going back into the details of his life saying, well, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is how we... That wasn't done. 
And they, and they tried to turn these miracles of Jesus into rumors of things that he did. But again, as we read it today, that rawness or that sense of realism mixed with all these supernatural events that took place just lend greater credibility that what we believe is true. We can stand on this. So sometimes when we're reading the Bible and we see all this detail, we think, I don't want to read all this stuff. Yes, you do. It, it lends credibility to what we're reading. That's, that there's, I, I believe that there is a sense that even, even though you may not be thinking about it, your mind, your heart is being reassured that what you're reading is true and actual. You're not trying to convince yourself this is really true as you read it. You, it's like you know that it is because that's how it reads. And that's important. It's very important. So back to Corinth and to the letter to the Corinthians. Paul was concerned about the presence of false teachers. He knew how they could so easily destroy the faith of individuals. These false teachers who were claiming to be apostles, they had entered the church. They promoted their own ideas. And again, they were seeking to discredit Paul and more importantly, the message of Paul. So because later on, we're gonna get into some details where Paul is really uh, going through proving he is an apostle. He's not doing that because he wants them to know he's the boss. He doesn't care about that. But he understands that the things that he has taught need uh, the strength and the authority of an apostle. It, it is, it is, you know, there's an, it's an office. And so if they could discredit him, then they can discredit, discredit the great theology that he had uh, given to them. So that's why he's going to prove these individuals wrong and to reveal to them the truth about himself. So again, Paul was concerned about that. And so he writes to defend the authenticity, both again of himself and as well as his message. So who are these opponents of Paul? And I have some of these in, in your notes just so you can review them. It's not that you have to memorize them, uh, but just kind of have an understanding these groups of individuals. So you have what's called Hellenistic Jews. That was Jews who were basically Greek-speaking. They, they would have been raised or they would have grown up in a Greek-speaking culture. Uh, they primarily speak, spoke Greek. Um, they could have been from Palestine or, or from the dispersion. When we talk about the dispersion or the diaspora, if you come across that terminology, that's Jews who uh, kind of were scattered around because of Jewish persecution. And so you find them all, you know, like even today, you find them all over the world. Uh, because they've been persecuted in many places, and so they kind of run away and kind of set up shop again. So that's who these individuals are. They claimed to be followers of Jesus, but they really promoted themselves as men in the line of Moses. And so that was their, their claim to authority, is they were from Moses. And so you should listen to them and not Paul. There's another view, and I don't know which of these views is correct. Maybe there's a combination of them. Uh, but the second view is that those individuals who were claiming to be apostles were, they were Jews, but they had been greatly influenced and had kind of embraced Gnosticism. Remember, Gnosticism um, is basically, they maintain that creation is evil, that physical matter is evil, or at least it's less good. Spiritual good, physical bad was kind of their idea. Um, they believed that salvation consisted in freeing the good spirit from the evil world. Uh, so even your physical body would be evil. And so you want to release your spirit from that. Uh, and that's where you're going to uh, find salvation. 
Uh, their belief was really dualistic in the sense they believed there was more than one God. And of course, the way then of salvation and the way forward is through secret knowledge. Basically, if you were one of the gifted ones or you were special because knowledge was revealed to you. And so that's how uh, that was promoted. And so there were, those individuals were of that view. It could have been that they were uh, involved in, and um, they were docetic. What that means is it was basically a belief that was opposed uh, to the idea that Christ only um, appeared to have a human body. That's what they were, that's what they were advocating, that Jesus really wasn't um, human or had a real body. He only appeared to have a body. Uh, and of course, then that would diminish the idea of him suffering and dying on the cross in reality. And so that, was, and so that you might even, uh, there's a, a thing throughout church history called the Arian controversy. And the Arian controversy in, church, in the church was this idea that Jesus was um, only divine or maybe Jesus was only human. He wasn't both. Uh, and so that's, so who is Jesus was something that had been kind of investigated for a long time uh, in church history, trying to figure out what did the Bible actually teach. And he wasn't 50-50, he was all God, all man, and for most of us, that's what we've heard our entire life. But that's because that was settled hundreds of years ago by men and women who argued over that and investigated the scripture for hundreds of years, trying to get a firm grasp of what the, of the, what the Bible said. So this group of individuals that had embraced Gnosticism or forms of Gnosticism, uh, in one way or other, were denying, really, the humanity of Jesus Christ. Uh, and if we deny the humanity of Christ, there's no salvation. Just like if you deny the divinity of Christ, there's no salvation. You know, he has to be both. And of course, he is, to say the least. Then there's a third view, and that they were just Jews who were from Palestine. Uh, again, they were claiming to be apostles of Christ. Um, uh, they, were, uh, they said they were trying to Bolster, bolster the position of Peter, James, and John. Uh, they preferred Peter, James, and John because they primarily ministered to Jews. So that kept Christianity more of a Jewish-centric kind of idea. And that's what they were concerned with. Um, they really tried to elevate the law of Moses. Uh, we heard of individuals called Judaizers. Judaizers are those who came along and basically would tell the believer that, it, that it's good that you believe in Jesus, but if you really want to be close to God, you have to be circumcised and you have to follow the law of Moses. That's that basic idea. And so these individuals were kind of in that, in that camp. And of course, uh, to top it off, not only did you have to emphasize the law of Moses, but they were the ones who would tell you what it means. They were almost like the sole interpreters uh, of the Bible. That way you can, you know, they can control the information and what you know and all those things. So these are the groups, um, it's believed, that were kind of opposing Paul. And, and what they were interested in was undermine the faith of believers so they could gather people to follow them. That's really the idea. They wanted people to follow them uh, and their ideas. So that's why early on then, when you read these first few verses of Corinthians, Paul says and mentions that his apostleship came by the will of God. He says that from the very beginning. He's going to prove it later, but he wants to know from the will of God. So he didn't appoint himself as an apostle. It wasn't something that was just the church decided on their own to do. Uh, there's only a few apostles in the Bible, and um, there are references that we will get into in a few weeks, well, maybe a few months, but we'll get there um, and talk about that. But just for now, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. And, and we're just going to use this passage just to kind of reemphasize Paul's apostleship. Um, 2 Peter chapter 3, 
No one doubts that Peter was an apostle. And so he writes this about Paul. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 15. And Peter writes, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. So the first thing that's important here is if Paul was an imposter, Peter would not point him out and say he's a beloved brother. Okay, he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't say it that way. So he says basically when, when he, what he's teaching them about the patience of God and salvation that he's teaching the exact same thing that Paul said. That's what he means here. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you. And then he mentions that what Paul wrote was what was given to him. And what that means is it was given to him by God. This is supernatural revelation. When you and I, even when we share the gospel, you are sharing supernatural revelation. Now God didn't speak to you in a dream, but he spoke to you through his word. His word is supernatural. You didn't, you didn't get who Jesus was because you read a history book. Right? You, you, didn't, you don't get the things about Jesus because you had a dream or someone else had a dream. It's because it was given to us here in the scriptures. This is from God. So it's supernatural revelation. And so that's what Paul has, supernatural revelation. And then he goes on and says, not only did Paul write this, verse 16, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Then he says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. He didn't say that there are some things that Paul writes that are wrong. That's not what he said. He said they're hard to understand. And then he says, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction. So those who are ignorant of good theology, those who are ignorant of of scripture, those who are ignorant of Jesus, they twist what Paul writes in their mind for their own advantage, what Peter says is, is to their own destruction. Because they end up denying Christ. They end up denying scripture. And then he adds this phrase. Again, which the ignorant and unstable twist their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So not only, not only do they twist other scriptures, the phrase as they do other scriptures refers to what Paul has written. They twist what Paul has said as they do other scriptures. I've just included what Paul said in that group. So Peter himself is telling us that what Paul writes here in these letters is the word of God, which is, once again, this stamp of approval of Paul's apostleship. That what we have to do, that we must take what Paul says authoritatively. That this comes from God. It has God's sense of approval. And so... What we then can, once again, feel safe or, I guess you would say, um, confident in, is that, once again, as we read through the scripture, we are reading truth. We can stand on this, and there is evidence, and there is, uh, that the Bible has been validated by historical and archaeological discoveries and records. But those things by themselves cannot authenticate the miracles of the Bible. But because the miracles of the Bible are so interlaced and connected to all of these regular things, or the realism of the Bible, you can't rip them apart without tearing apart everything. And what that does is it lends credibility to all of it. So when we read this, we then can 
really proudly proclaim that we are reading the Word of God. This is God's Word to us, and it is true, and we can stand on it and build our lives on it. We should leave here encouraged once again. Yes, I am a Christian. God has saved me from my sin. Jesus came to this world and lived his life as a perfect man. He was sinless in every way. Scripture declares it, God affirms it, and history as well affirms it. He not only lived that way, he then was crucified. The Bible tells us he was crucified. History tells us he was crucified. The Bible tells us the theological meaning of that because God placed on him our sin. And then when he was being crucified, God was punishing him as if he had committed our sins. He was our substitute. That gives me the theological understanding of the significance of what took place. And then the Bible also tells us, which once again has been confirmed through history, in many ways, that Jesus rose again. And that he was seen by many people. And one time, he was seen by 500 at once. Which really makes it ridiculous when someone says, yeah, they were hallucinating. Now, I've not been to parties where lots of people are hallucinating. But again, from what I've read, people that I've talked to, you don't have a party of 500 people and they all hallucinate the same thing. That's all pretty much very different. And so it just doesn't, there's no credibility to these accusations that these things did not take place. It's rooted in history. And not only then that, that Jesus rose again from the dead, but then the really wild claim that some people have a hard time wrapping their mind around is that he's going to return. Which, after all of that, is just such a small thing. It's just a tiny thing. And so we can have great confidence. And so we, and we carry that confidence as we read. Remember that God has, has preserved all these things for our benefit. So that we will know his will. So we will understand ourselves. We can understand salvation. But also for our benefit that we will have a continuing confidence that what we believe is true. Because remember, our soul is at stake. And the souls of others at stake. And that's very, very important to know that we have the truth and that we can share the truth. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. Thankful, Father, for the things that Paul has written. We ask, Lord, as we continue in our study, that, Lord, that we would always approach your word with a sense of great reverence. Not, Lord, superstitiously, but understanding, Lord, that what we possess is the truth that you have preserved for us, that it is true in every way, that it has withstood the attacks of the evil one and of the masses for literally hundreds of years and has always withstood those attacks. And the armor has not been even uh, uh, chinked in any way. It remains full and intact. And we are grateful. Pray, Lord, that our hearts would be encouraged with this truth. And Father, for those who may not know Christ, we pray that they would recognize, again, the realism and the truth and the supernatural source of truth and place their faith and trust in Christ for their salvation. Father, as always, we're grateful. We do thank you and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.